Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, New York section. We're delighted to um, be hosting or having Dr. John Phillips as our speaker this morning as our first speaker in the seven o'clock hour of this Empire Urology Lecture Series. Dr. Phillips um, specializes in minimally invasive surgery and urologic oncology at Westchester uh, Medical Center. He's the program director um, for that um, urology. Um, Dr. Phillips has always been committed to resident education. I can recall when I was involved in the New York section residence committee, he was actually, this was back in 2013, he was our faculty advisor for the New York section for the residence bowl. And he prepared questions for us to review so that we were, we were, um, we were ready to compete. Unfortunately, we didn't win that year, but we, I think we got to the semifinals. Um, so Dr. Phillips, welcome, uh, and we'll uh, have you start your lecture on adrenal diseases for the urologist. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Battalato. By the way, that, uh, that uh, contest was rigged from the beginning. Uh, it's really a great way to start the day is to speak about adrenal physiology. And uh, my first slide is just a, a nod to, uh, to Washington. DC where we almost had our AUA meeting. Um, and actually these cherry trees will figure prominently later in the lecture. Um, but um, just a few things, we're gonna follow hopefully most of the AUA University uh, curriculum as well as some things that have appeared on the in-service exams and also the oncology assessment test. And things that are really more relevant to urologists and urology residents rather than all of endocrinology, since a lot of the adrenal things we see functionally sometimes come to us already having been worked up. But I think it's important just to review the history of the adrenal, the anatomy, of course, the pathophysiology of some of the more important uh, syndromes we're going to see, some of the guidelines that we need to know impl implementing these, um, these uh, algorithms and of course, surgical approaches. At the end, I have a few questions I recall from various board exams and, and reviews. So the adrenal glands have been identified as early as the 16th century. Um, the, the first anatomists were Eustatius, um, who noted that these little guys, uh, which he called here, you can see corpuscula illa renivis in Conventia, were were already identified as being small little bodies or corpuscula that were sitting on top of the kidney. But even in this drawing from 1623, you can see that they already appreciated that they were relatively independent of the kidneys. And they actually got the adrenal vasculature pretty much correct here. The, the left adrenal vein coming off of the left renal vein and the right adrenal vein coming off of the vena cava. So, we can argue of the simplicity of this, but they really were rather accurate. Now, the adrenal development is really important to, to know clinically, and that's largely because um, in the absence of the kidney, the adrenal generally should uh, develop in the same location. And that's largely because 
the adrenal um, uh, cortex derives from mesoderm independent of the metanephros. You can see the metanephros way down here hasn't yet um, risen to its normal location. But by the fourth and sixth week, the adrenal is already well underway towards developing the cortex relatively independent of the uh, medulla, uh, the, the medulla coming from neuroectoderm and neural crest cells. It's all, also important to notice that the adrenal cortex is very close to the mesonephros. And so when the gonad does develop and descends into the scrotum, you can sometimes pull some uh, adrenal rests with it for this precise reason. And in 3% of children who undergo groin dissections, you'll find a small little yellow island of adrenal cortical tissue. By the eighth week, steroidogenesis has really begun, but only the uh, zones uh, that handle uh, the production of mineralocorticoid and glucocorticoids, not the sex hormones, the zona reticularis. That really only becomes functional by the child is between three and five years of age. I promise this is the only image like this you'll see this morning, but I just want you to look down here in the lower left. You can see here in the, in the fetus, estrogen blocks the activity of 3-beta-hydroxy-dehydrogenase. And, and because of that, uh, the fetus doesn't make his or her own aldosterone and his or her own cortisol. And I think that's protective to the mother. The mother's making plenty of these hormones and the fetus doesn't need to add to the soup. But what it does mean is that these precursors end up going in these other pathways towards the production of estriol. And for many years, estriol was used as a surrogate marker of fetal brain activity. So if you had no estriol um, and no fetal movements, that's a, obviously a rather dire sign. But it also means that the infant's um, or the embryo's adrenal gland uh, feels under-stimulated because it has no internal feedback. And for this reason, the ACTH of the fetus goes way, way up. And for that reason, because of the suppression by estrogen, the adrenal gland in the fetus is very large. Um, cortisol production is very low. Uh, it's almost uh, uh, Addisonian in a way. And so the ACTH stimulates the adrenal growth so that the adrenal gland is 20, up to 20 times larger than its adult size relative to the kidney. Um, what happens after birth, of course, is in the lack of estrogen, the adrenal gland rapidly involutes, uh, so much so that during birth, um, uh, especially birth trauma, these large vascular adrenal glands can hemorrhage. It's the reason we see uh, adrenal calcifications um, on incidental scans. Uh, so the normal adrenal gland has long been known to be a paired deep retroperitoneal organ around the 12th rib, but uh, laparoscopically you could appreciate that it's much more cephalad than that. Very small, only five to six grams. As we said, it arises really independent of the kidney. So in the, in the absence of the seminal vesicle and the absence of the kidney, you'll still have a normal adrenal gland on that side. Now zonation is important. We all know GFR, we all know um, uh, salt, sugar, sex, but it's also important uh, functionally because you can see here the cortex wrapping around the medulla is not just an anatomic convenience, but cortisol production in the cortex will percolate down through the cortex into the medulla. And it's thought that uh, cortisol production is important to optimize function of tyrosine hydroxylase, which as you know, is the rate limiting step in catecholamine production. So the medulla may function well without the cortex, 
uh, but the cortex uh, optimizes medullary function. It's also important to note that the main site of ACTH stimulation is really only on the zona fasciculata, not the zona glomerulosa, which is of course the uh, area for uh, glucocorticoids, uh, for mineralocorticoids, and that the uh, adrenal does not make really any androgens to speak of until the child is well into toddlerhood. Now the vascular anatomy of the adrenal is surgically rather important, certainly with partial adrenalectomy, you're going to be using a ligature or whatever device to really uh, resect a lot of the adrenal, leaving behind sort of just a rim that you hope is going to be perfused. And generally it is well perfused, except in periods of stress. You can see here that, the, um, that you can divide the main vein to the adrenal gland and it will still uh, uh, drain well through these uh, parasitic accessory vessels, usually superiorly and medially except in periods of stress. So if the adrenal gland is tasked to make a lot of hormone and needs to hypertrophy, that main vein uh, may not be sufficient to acutely at least accommodate the change in volume. So just a, a slide before a movie, the um, adrenal venous anatomy is rather infamous or famous. And we know laparoscopically that we were all taught to attack the adrenal vein first and then open up the adrenal vein from its other attachments and proceed towards its nucleation. But this is sometimes not always the case in large masses. The arterial anatomy is not insignificant. You can see here that most adrenal glands derive two arterial sources. One is from the renal artery, very rarely directly from the aorta. But on the right side, the subhepatics, and on the left side, the subphrenics will perfuse the adrenal gland. Um, so it, some teach that it's easier to attack the adrenal vein if you divide these small little parasitic arteries first. It not only decreases adrenal perfusion, but may make the adrenal a little more mobile so that when it comes to uh, dividing the adrenal vein, there's a little bit more laxity. This is sort of illustrated by a recent case we did, this is a very, this is a 10 centimeter pheo and a relatively stable guy. And here we are uh, dissecting, this might be a, a little shaky, but here we are dissecting the main adrenal vein on the right side. You can see immediately would be the caudate lobe of the liver. And um, this is clearly an older video. A ligature would be adequate to divide this without clips. You can see here that when you put a clip on, you sometimes run out of real estate. Uh, now this, uh, this clip goes on and, and punctures the lateral aspect of the adrenal. And normally this wouldn't cause a problem. You can see here, this is a brisk flow of blood. And it just it shows you that that kidney, that, uh, that adrenal was as large as a kidney. And those arterial uh, sources were rel relatively significant. So our, our error was not dividing those adrenal arteries these little adrenal arteries first, decreasing perfusion and then going for the adrenal vein. So that's just a, a correlation of anatomy um, and how that can be significant um, surgically. Now the neurological, um, and I do have a timer here, so I, I do know when to, when to stop. Um, neurologically, the adrenal gland is famously innervated by preganglionic sympathetic fibers because the, the medulla is in a sense a a ganglionic structure derived from sympathetic onlaga. So most of these fibers are, are uh, preganglionic, 
and uh, innervate the medulla. Some of them will actually break free and innervate the juxtaglomerular apparatus, which is an interesting link between the adrenal medulla and the adrenal cortex. So just a little bit about adrenal pathology, and this is a relatively significant image here. You can see, for those of you who are younger who may not recognize these the people, um, this is a President Kennedy and uh, President Eisenhower, and both of them were afflicted by adrenal disorders. So what are the odds? There's 46 presidents, so two divided by 46 is a relatively high incidence of adrenal pathology amongst chief executives. Now, Kennedy's problem underlying everything was an autoimmune adrenal insufficiency due to an antibody against 21-alpha hydroxylase, but he was treated with cortisol and in a time where cortisol treatment wasn't really well worked out. And so he was often uh, either Cushingoid uh, because of too much cortisol or when the cortisol ran out and uh, didn't receive another therapy uh, was um, Addisonian in a way. And when he was running for president, uh, a lot of criticism on his health beyond his Catholicism was on his health and that some had claimed that he had Addison's disease and it was made clear in a Newsweek editorial that he did not have Addison's disease, which classically was described by Thomas Addison, which was a tubercular destruction of both adrenal glands causing adrenal hypofunction. And because Kennedy did not ever have tuberculosis, he therefore didn't have Addison's disease, although he was Addisonian. Of course, metastatic disease can rarely cause adrenal hypofunction if you destroy both adrenal glands. Um, and rarely, I've seen one case in which there's been pituitary destruction uh, and causing low ACTH, and you can uh, lose adrenal function that way. It's important to remember um, in Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome, this is the uh, sepsis associated with, with, um, uh, with bacterial infection, that this can cause adrenal hemorrhage and uh, necrosis. Hyperfunction is more important for us surgically. Uh, it's clear that adrenal cancers will be hyperfunctional, but uh, we also will have um, those cases that come to surgery because of hyperfunctioning medullary or cortical rims. Interestingly, the most uh, cited emergency in all urology uh, is actually a child born with ambiguous genitalia. The most common cause of this is, of course, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which we won't get into much today, although it's important to note this is one of the more common reasons associated with uh, ambiguity of the genitalia. Then there's the non-functional adrenal masses. And some of these are surgical because they're six centimeters or larger, uh, but some of them are relatively incidental. And as Lord Kelvin used to say, nothing exists unless it's measurable. In the United States, nothing exists unless you have an NIH consensus conference about it. So the incidentaloma was first discussed at an NIH consensus conference in 2002, because it was clearly the most common way an adrenal mass was uh, was diagnosed, was incidentally. And the incidental, uh, incidentaloma guidelines were, and these are relatively applicable, is that all patients with an incidentaloma should at least be considered as having a workup for functionality. And uh, to determine if a patient had Cushing's, uh, uh, Cushingoid adrenals, a one milligram low-dose dexamethasone suppression test was usually sufficient to rule in or rule out for the workup. It's also a low-risk test. It really requires just an intravenous puncture. And some have also obtained plasma-free metanephrines at that same moment. 
you withdraw the blood, send it off, and then you give the, the, the one milligram dexamethasone, and then you come back later to measure your cortisol changes. It's also recommended that any patient with hypertension who has an incidental renal mass should undergo at least measurement of serum potassium because this is probably acutely more uh, worrisome cardiologically than long-term catecholamine excess. A uh, low attenuation value on a CT scan is almost certainly a benign adenoma, and we'll show you a slide of, of those lesions uh, that have very low Hounsfield units, i.e. in the negative range. And uh, remember that surgery should always be considered in a patient who's a surgical candidate who has functional adrenal cortical tumors that are clinically relevant. So it is arguable that some elderly patients with an aldosteronoma might be medically managed. Some who are younger might be better managed surgically. And even in bilateral adrenal hyperplasia, you can often argue that one side may be more dominant than the other. Of course, that's different than pheochromocytoma, where it's generally recommended that almost all patients undergo adrenalectomy. And the guideline for those with bilateral pheochromocytomas or those syndromes in which patients are predisposed to redevelop pheochromocytomas is to at least consider a partial adrenalectomy. I was very proud of myself. One of my first cases was an adrenalectomy in a von Hippel-Lindau patient. And uh, in the recovery room, he was aghast that I hadn't considered a partial adrenalectomy. So um, uh, it just goes to show you that uh, a lot of patients know a lot more about the indications for things than, than we do. Luckily, uh, that particular patient's adrenal gland was eight centimeters, and it wouldn't have been very easy to do a uh, partial adrenalectomy, but it's still a very important point in small one centimeter, two centimeter lesions. And in general, uh, patients who have a adrenal mass greater than six centimeters should be considered for surgery. And those between four to six centimeters is the gray zone. Those are the ones that might be considered uh, for uh, further workup. Just a, a note on the, on the adenomas. If you get a CT scan, make sure it's a triple phase uh, CT scan. And this is really the best way to rule in or rule out a lipid poor adenoma. If an adenoma has a lot of fat, it's really quite easy. But some of these adenomas are very difficult to rule, rule out a functional tumor or one that needs to come out, especially in the gray zone. So the hallmarks of a lipid poor adenoma would be early washout in the triphasic CT scan. Um, and uh, that's an early clue. Another one would be any mass that's less than four centimeters. So a small mass that has early phase washout is almost clearly a benign lesion that can be watched. Now, what about these masses? You can see um, these are two patients of ours. These are very large masses. Clearly these are coming out, uh, but the dark areas here are consistent with fat. And in fact, the Hounsfield units generally are between minus 30 and minus 100. And these large lesions are often space occupying. And when they become very large like this, it can cause some respiratory embarrassment, pain, and lateralizing findings. And, and when that's the case, you generally have a good indication to do surgery in a large myelolipoma, uh, rather than somebody who has an incidental myelolipoma that's say five centimeters without any, any symptoms. You can find calcifications in these, but I believe it's reportable if you find an adrenal cancer within a myelolipoma. At least I haven't seen that reported. Another important cause of an adrenal mass is hemorrhage. We don't think of hemorrhage uh, much because we don't see these patients who are acutely ill, but sometimes patients will develop a hemorrhage 
recover, and then we see them later, the calcified mass. The most common cause of hemorrhage, of course, would be sepsis. The meningococcemia is the most infamous cause, but any kind of sepsis ought to do it. There are some patients who develop DIC. It's obviously unclear if DIC is etiologic or it's just in the setting of sepsis and, and anticoagulation. Antiphospholipid, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is also associated with uh, adrenal hemorrhage, especially in the settings of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And it's important to note uh, that, uh, that the adrenal on the right side is more prone to hemorrhage from trauma than on the left side because it's closest to the spine. This is an example of a CT scan of a patient who came in for incidental reasons who had bilateral adrenal calcifications. These are quite obvious. These may have been sustained even in birth trauma uh, and are generally, um, are generally incidental. Now, what are not incidental is, of course, malignancy. Now, the most common malignant tumor of the adrenal gland is a metastatic lesion. The most common of these in the United States, anyway, is lung, and followed by breast and stomach. Now, in some Chinese series, esophageal cancer metastasizes to the adrenal gland and takes over this number two spot. But we can also find a melanoma. And, of course, the uh, 2018 AJCC guidelines has changed the staging of kidney cancer, depending on how it metastasizes to the adrenal gland, contiguous involvement of the adrenal gland is now thought to be more of a, a T4 lesion, whereas a drop metastasis spread by hematogenous or lymphatic spread is now thought to be an M1 lesion. Uh, I think that was one of the questions we got wrong on the, on, the, on the AUA quiz, and I think the judge should have looked that one up. Now, uh, indications to concern, be concerned about malignancy, of course, would be a very large tumor, uh, a large mass. Any patient that elicits 17 hydroxycorticosteroids are worrisome for having an adrenal tumor. And I think that that's one of the things you can get in the office evaluating anybody with a large adrenal mass. Of course, Cushingoid uh, uh, signs, virilization in a, a child um, or in a female and feminization in, in a male. One of the most common uh, findings is, is acne or rosacea changes to the face. It's a very grim prognosis with a very minimal five-year overall survival. And classically on the in-service examination, the treatment was mitotain, uh, which is a derivative of DDT, uh, which is the insecticide. Now, this is an important um, slide because it launches our physiology section of the talk. And what more fascinating at 7.30 in the morning than the macula densa. This is clearly a critical structure for adrenal physiology. As you know, the macula densa uh, is present in all uh, uh, vertebrates except um, in uh, the kangaroo rat, where it's very, very long and can help hyper uh, concentrate the, uh, the urine. It's not present in reptiles, and they have a very difficult time concentrating the urine. But what the macula densa does do is through prostaglandin secretion, will stimulate the juxtaglomerular cells to make renin. The renin, of course, goes off, and we eventually get back angiotensin II. Angiotensin II constricts both the afferent and the efferent arterial, but more the efferent arterial to help improve GFR. So on the in-service examination, one of the 
uh, one of the uh, reasons why angiotensin II can be increased is because of low distal tubule sodium and also low blood pressure. Now this is important because the juxtaglomerular cells can also be stimulated by the sympathetic nerves. It takes a while for aldosterone to be made. It has to be transcribed, it has to be translated, then, then post-processed. So if a patient is hypotensive and needs to reclaim sodium, it's going to be several hours before uh, the aldosterone can be secreted. So it's thought that sympathetic innervation of the juxtaglomerular cells it can, can occur with anticipation. If a, if a patient is anticipating dehydration or if they believe they have to walk 30 miles to get gasoline, then the sympathetic nervous system will turn on and hopefully pre-initiate the production of aldosterone. Aldosterone, of course, as you know, main function is to influence the epithelial sodium channel or ENAC. So you can see here it takes quite some time. It's not as quick as say ADH function. It takes several hours for aldosterone to be made and then to cause sodium uh, reclamation and potassium excretion. Now aldosterone is mostly but not wholly independent of ACTH stimulation. We know that cortisol will optimize aldosterone production. Um, uh, it's almost wholly dependent upon angiotensin II stimulation via, via the uh, renin system. Also, feedback is very poor. Uh, once you make a lot of aldosterone, there's no feedback to turn off the production. It's really dependent on the electrical and electrolytic changes that go on. Now, this important individual, this good-looking individual, is a fellow New Yorker who was born in Brooklyn and um, was named Jerome Cohn. He eventually went to Michigan, and this is his Facebook picture at the University of Michigan where he matriculated. Uh, he went to there for med school and then changed his name to Jerome Kahn uh, for some reason. And he was very interested in sweat physiology. And uh, it was thought that aldosterone and sodium were very important in sweat physiology. But then he came to realize that it was also important in, in, in uh, management of, of blood pressure and its production in the uh, adrenal. His first patient was a young female who had such severe myalgias that she couldn't walk. She didn't have a neurological paralysis, but she just couldn't walk. Hypertensive. And, um, and strangely, whenever she would eat Chinese food, uh, the paralysis would get worse. Um, so clearly she was developing a hypokalemia and hypernatremic alkalosis. This alkalosis may or may not be present in, in patients who are compensating well. And this is where we rely on our nephrology colleagues to do those complicated formulas to find out if somebody is uh, appropriately compensating for their alkalosis. But importantly, they're not edematous. So they, uh, they have myalgias and are not edematous. So he referred this patient to a surgeon there was no imaging, and so they did a bilateral lumbar approach, identified the adrenal mass, and I'm gonna say it was on the right side, even though it could have been the left. We're 50-50 on that. Uh, but she, they removed the tumor, and a few weeks later, the, um, the potassium normalized. You can see here, this is the old approach. It looks straightforward. I can tell you having assisted the great Bernie Litton and two of these, this is a deep hole, and it's uh, not easy to see the adrenal gland this way. I have a video from Germany that shows the uh, retroperitoneal approach to this much more uh, direct and, and, uh, and feasible. This is a, uh, one of the more important uh, keynote lectures he gave, curiously at the John Phillips Memorial Lecture, 1965, 
I don't recall giving uh, my permission for that, but this is where Jerome Cohn was received an award for uh, describing what now is known as Kahn's syndrome of hypokalemia, suppressed plasma renin, and high urinary and plasma aldosterone. Clearly there's primary aldosteronomas. This is the one where we see the need of adrenalectomies, but the secondary ones, you don't wanna be taking out somebody who has high aldosterone and high renin, because these are generally compensatory. So you'll probably be making something worse. And these are low volume states, hypoalbuminemia, uh, renal ischemia. I'd, I'd love to see a patient with a juxtaglomerular tumor. These are generally hyalur masses in the kidney. And uh, I gotta give you credit, if you see one of these and you think about getting a renin. This is an interesting situation, a patient of ours who had bilateral adrenal masses. You can see here that this is a right-sided adrenal mass and here's a left-sided one. This is macronodular adrenal hyperplasia. And these are sometimes incidental, but sometimes associated with hypertension. And as you know, many patients who are antihypertensives have really crazy uh, laboratory studies. Their aldos may be normal, their aldos may be high. Their potassiums may be normal because they're taking KDUR. And so it's important to figure out if, if one of these sides is dominant. And the best way to do that, of course, is with lateralizing studies with adrenal vein sampling. As a resident, I used to think that you put a catheter in the adrenal vein and out, out gushed adrenal blood. But if you ever participate in these things, uh, you notice that it's, it's really a, a trickle at best. And it's actually very difficult to get a pure sample. And so this is one of the reasons we also check a cortisol level at the same time, driving what they call an aldosterone cortisol ratio, AC ratio. And this is the thing that you need to look at, not the aldosterone level itself. And you can see here that we also, uh, this is a paper of, paper of ours from eons ago, that we also like to get ACTH levels before, uh, we like to get these levels before and after ACTH stimulation. A lot of interventionalists don't do this because it takes time and uh, they're already overbooked. But you can see here that in benign adrenal hyperplasia, there's really no change, if any, of suppression in, um, in their AC ratios. Whereas in almost all adrenal, primary adrenal tumors of aldosteronomas, you can see that most of these will increase their AC ratios. And generally, the, um, the, the contralateral side is suppressed. Now, adrenalectomy in those patients is often associated with chronic renal insufficiency. And the reason is important because um, the high aldo levels can mask underlying renal insufficiency. If you think about these patients, afferent and efferent arterioles are constantly under some sort of vasoconstriction. And then when you release that, um, the GFR may rise to a higher level. And uh, we're trying to figure out globally what are predictors for elevated creatinines after an adrenalectomy for aldosteronomas. It's something to be cognizant of. Um, it doesn't mean that there's been surgical damage to the kidney, but it, those patients generally have to be referred to nephrology for a workup. Now in the last few minutes, I think 22 minutes uh, to give the next speaker time, we'll just speak about the more exciting tumors of the medulla. This would of course be the pheochromocytomas. These are rather interesting tumors. Um, we share them with our general surgery colleagues. And it's surprising to find how many patients with chromosomas are really asymptomatic, that they uh, may have hypertension, they may have other findings, 
but they really aren't uh, the people that show up with catastrophic hypertensive crises. So once you see a few of these, you'll, you'll see that there's quite a, a broad spectrum. They're still very rare, um, and um, they're very rare in patients with hypertension, but over a career as an internist, you probably will see maybe four or five patients who have a FEO. It's very common in patients with neurofibromatosis. So if you have a patient with von Recklinghausen's disease or neurofibromatosis and they have hypertension, half of those patients will have a FEO. So uh, those patients are clearly gonna benefit from screening. It used to be taught that this is a tumor of the 10-10-10 rule, now not thought to be accurate. Uh, the, one of the 10s was 10% uh, were hereditary. It's now thought that if you actually look at the, look at the germline, you can find germline mutations in one of the many genes and up to 30% of the, the patients. Interestingly, this is a, a disease of volume contraction, like uh, Kahn syndrome, no edema, but also no muscle cramping because the potassium would be normal. Here are two examples. So we saw that Kennedy had adrenal hypofunction from the cortisol levels, but President Eisenhower actually died many years of heart disease and at autopsy he had a small adrenal tumor. This is written up in the New England Journal, which is a white journal read by internists. And uh, the, uh, he, he had a pheochromocytoma, obviously indolent, not known, but certainly contributed to his cardiomyopathy. And you can see here that well, this isn't a very controlled study, but these are some of his blood pressure readings over time that he was consistently uh, hypertensive during certain episodes. Um, and then you have another patient like uh, here on the right. This is a large FEO, and these are uh, uh, really significant clinically because uh, the patients get used to having a lot of catecholamine circulating. And then when you clip off their adrenal vein here during surgery, you can see this rather large drop in blood pressure. Now, we see pheochromocytomas mostly in sporadic cases, but it's important to, uh, to know about at least VHL uh, because if a patient comes in uh, with a pheo, I think we should examine them to make sure they don't belong to one of these families. I don't think it, it's gonna harm us. So just a, a nod to uh, von Hippel, who was the ophthalmologist and Lindau, the Swedish pathologist who sort of put it all together. So it wasn't a urologist or an endocrinologist that put the that described the syndrome, but a, uh, an ophthalmologist who noted that retinal angiomas uh, was a hallmark of disease. And for some time, we had ophthalmoscopes in our office to examine pe people's eyes, clearly not easy to do without dilating them. And then OSHA took them away. However, there are definitely two clusters of patients who have pheochromocytomas, depending on where the gene is mutated. So the First cluster are those patients with von Hippel-Lindau disease um, and those that have inherited mutations in succinate dehydrogenase. These uh, tumors are driven through HIF1-alpha and in the same sort of pathway as kidney cancer. The other cluster are those in, say, von Recklinghausen's disease or MEM2, where they mostly have mutations in NF1 or RET, and these are more in the, in the line of oncogenes and apoptotic escape. So you can see in VHL, we really need to know that retinal angiomas, spinal tumors, ear tumors, adrenal tumors, and kidney tumors are the hallmark of VHL. But I think a lot of these things, you should be able to pick up on a, a CT scan and, and physical exam. Neurofibroma is a relatively uh, obvious thing to, to find. And again, if a patient has one of these lesions and is hypertensive, 
They almost certainly have a field that needs to be ruled out. Here is a, a Cafe LA spot. You can see the coast of California borders, uh, which is a hallmark of, uh, of these disorders. Now the signs, of course, are relatively common. An interesting sign, um, of course, is hypotension. I always think of these people as being hypertensive, but in fact, uh, people who have long-standing catecholamine excess may in fact have trouble mounting high blood pressure and are hypotensive um, and may come in looking very sluggish, which is a rather interesting finding. Uh, a lot of them can have facial pallor because of facial vasoconstriction, but most of them complain of, of uh, palpitations, tachycardia, blurred vision, etc. Diabetes is not uncommon, and there are many patients who walk around with anxiety disorders who in fact have an underlying FEO. Now, a little bit about uh, adrenal development with the medulla. You can see here, this is a, a tadpole embryo. You can see quite clearly that the neural crest cells are really important in every onlaga of the body. And that's important to, to realize that if you think of the neurological system, the peripheral neurological system as these nerve roots, the more cranial and caudal nerve roots will obviously end up being the parasympathetic ganglia. These uh, generally do not make catecholamines and generally are not standing for chromaffin. Uh, the other ones are sympathetic. And you can see here that the circle goes to this lateral lesion. These would be the uh, sympathetic ganglia of the main chain, and this is the, the medulla of the adrenal gland. These make catecholamines and are chromaffin positive, but only this lateral lesion will be a pheochromocytoma. So there is no such thing as an extra adrenal pheochromocytoma. That's according to the World Health Organization. So you can take that to the bank. So if you say somebody has an extra adrenal pheochromocytoma, we know what you mean, but it's not true. Now what that does mean is that all these other tumors that you find, even close to the adrenal gland, is actually a paraganglioma. And so the pheochromocytomas are seen in the VHL families, the, the von Recklinghausen's families, and the paragangliomas are seen in the PGL families. Now, the microbiological link to this is, of course, the mitochondria. And we know that the mitochondria is a beautiful uh, organelle derived from ancient bacteria. And on the inner membrane of the mitochondria sits a whole host of enzymes, the not the least of important of which is this little red guy here, obviously uh, just a cartoon, and this is succinate dehydrogenase, which is an incredibly important enzyme, folks, because it's involved in not only the Krebs cycle, but also in this uh, important electron transfer chain, uh, which, as you know, is the only way we make ATP. And the trivia question of the, of the day is that the only reason we need oxygen is because it's the ultimate acceptor of this electron chain. Now, ubiquinone is an important enzyme everywhere, um, but this enzyme here is important in transferring these, uh, these electrons down of the, of the chain uh, towards the production of ATP. So this is succinate dehydrogenase, and it's also known as cytochrome BC. Now, succinate dehydrogenase sits here on the internal membrane of the mitochondria. Here's the cell cytosol. It changes succinate to fumarate. So mutations in any one of these things will cause this enzyme to be dysregulated, but it depends on where the mutation is that determines the phenotype. The most common mutation for pheos 
is, uh, are mutations in B and D, leading to increased succinate in the cytosol. Interestingly, or profoundly interestingly, uh, and if you ever hear Dr. Lemihan at the NIH talk about this, he gets very interested in this, is that this links the uh, genomic uh, mutation of VHL um, with pheochromocytomas, explaining why patients with the VHL can develop kidney cancers and pheochromocytoma. You can see here that succinate migrates out into the cell. It interferes with proleal uh, hydroxyl dehydrogenase, and then interferes with a degradation of HIF1-alpha, and HIF1-alpha goes on to make all those wonderful uh, proteins that lead to cancer phenotypes. So clearly, when we see these patients, the most common uh, finding is a sporadic pheochromocytoma seen in about two-thirds of patients, but the rest are germline mutated positive patients, and you have to be aware that sometimes these patients have to be screened and be counseled appropriately by a geneticist who is uh, CLIA-approved. VHL and uh, the PGLs are the ones that uh, go through the succinate dehydrogenase, whereas von Recklinghausen's disease um, and MEN2 go through uh, apoptotic escape. Now, importantly, we know that catecholamines are the critical chemical required to manifest pheochromocytoma, but they were not easy to identify, uh, far more difficult to identify than the cortisols. And uh, here is uh, Johns Hopkins, uh, Dr. Abel, here is checking his, checking his text messages, as I'm sure we all are this morning. He identified catecholamines as early as 1905 with the help of this lovely biochemist, biochemist named Jokichi Takimini. Now he was not only a Japanese biochemist, but an incredibly important New Yorker who was involved in a lot of philanthropy, not the least of which was donation of 2,000 cherry trees to Washington, D.C. So here's a short intermission, and now we'll move on. Uh, so Takamini's role was to not only identify uh, the catecholamines, but also uh, leading to the uh, uh, articulation of, of how these uh, precursors lead to norepinephrine and epinephrine. Now, it's very important to note that norepinephrine turns into epinephrine only because of the activity of this enzyme, PNMT. Now, PNMT is not present in von Hippel-Lindau tumors or in paragangliomas. And for that reason, those patients will not have elevated epinephrine. So that's an important distinction. If you see a patient uh, who uh, has a pheochromocytoma and you, you get uh, plasma epinephrine and it's normal, but the norepinephrine is elevated, that may be a, a VHL pheo as opposed to an MEN2 or a uh, von Recklinghausen's pheo. Now, here's a large left-sided uh, pararenal mass that we took out. And unlike adrenal masses, when you divide the adrenal vein, the whole thing opens up like a little book. With this, we identified veins, and there are many of them, and divided them, and there was no movement. There was no opening of any book. And the reason is because this is not a pheochromocytoma. This is a paraganglioma. So these generally are more medial. Uh, they generally are in other ectopic sites of wherever the sympathetic chain had them develop. Um, and they're very tenacious. They don't come out easily. We've only done seven of these and three of them were converted. So you can see here that the workup most commonly is going to be the, your plasma metanephrines and your 24-hour urine catecholamines. Now, if these are normal, repeat them. 
And sometimes people repeat them a third time just to demonstrate the consistency of their elevation. And some endocrinologists will say that a borderline elevation in these studies is not diagnostic, you have to repeat them anyway. But clearly what we're looking for now are the metanephrines. These are the urinary metanephrines, but we want the plasma metanephrines as well. Imaging on the in-service exam, it's almost always MRI. You can see here, this is a T2-weighted image. You can tell because the spinal cord is uh, bright. And it's, it's felt that often, but not always, pheochromocytomas tend to enhance with T2-weighted imaging. And that helps, especially when they're small. And this VO is coming out, but if you have a two centimeter mass that's uh, enhancing on T2-weighted imaging, that's suspicious. When you're worried about recurrences uh, or multifocality or ectopia, 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 an MIBG scan is indicated. I've only ordered three of these and never have they worked. And the nuclear medicine doctors often say that these are exceedingly sensitive to any type of antihypertensive agent, even agents that you don't think are antihypertensive. Even, uh, even uh, gabapentin for pain can cause an MIBG scan to go from weak to negative. And so if you have a, uh, a patient who you really feel has multiple disease, multiple lesions or has recurred, you did an adrenalectomy and the catecholamines are still elevated and you get an MIBG and it's negative, the nuclear medicine doctors may say, get an octreotide scan. And some forms of PET scans can actually see them. But the MIBGs are classically used to look at multifocality, but are exceedingly sensitive to doing the test correctly. The in-service used to have pictures, no longer, but this is a classic finding on uh, pheochromocytomas, this well-circumscribed ball of cells known in German as Zellballen. And then other predictors of malignancy, the larger the tumor, uh, persistent hypertension after an adrenalectomy, uh, persistent catecholamines after an adrenalectomy, uh, production of a enolase called SNAIL. This is um, generally not predictive, but associated, and the presence of metastases. So if you look up in Campbell's, what is the strongest indicator of malignancy? It's the presence of metastases. That's not particularly helpful when you're trying to, when you're trying to prognosticate uh, of a patient who's had a solitary lesion but it is, the, it is definitely a sine qua non of, of, of malignancy is metastatic pheo. They most often go to the lymph nodes, liver, lung, and bone. Um, pathologists should be able to give you a pass score, a pass value. The higher this is from zero to 14, the more likely it is this is a malignancy. Now, uh, surgery for the pheochromocytomas is obviously uh, exciting. Exciting not only for the uh, surgeon, but for the anesthesiologist. Charlie Mayo was the first to take one out um, in 1926, a famous patient. She lived many years after the surgery, but he was astounded at how vascular these lesions are, probably not just vascular, but also friable, that they tend to fall apart very easily. It's one of the reasons why the vasculature is, is attacked first. Now, the workup for these patients really should occur weeks before you want to do an adrenalectomy. It's very rare that you'll have to do an adrenalectomy in somebody who's acutely sick. Uh, now, the Germans who've done an Essen under Dr. Waltz has done 2,500 FIOs, and they feel that any of these preoperative maneuvers, alpha blockade, beta blockade, can worsen the intraoperative experience, and that these patients show up to your doorstep having had decades of uh, adrenal crises and have survived and therefore uh, should find no better area 
for control than in the operating room. And so they almost never do the things that we do here, which is start them on an alpha blocker. Now, phenoxybenzamine is very expensive. It's $100 a pill because it's an orphan drug. Uh, a lot of endocrinologists just give eight milligrams of Cardura twice a day. A few weeks later, add Rapamil. Um, maybe a day or two later, you can add a beta blocker to protect the heart. Get them admitted to the hospital for hydration. These are almost always volume contracted patients and they need to have intravenous fluids to get their urine specific gravity down to 10-10, 10-12, something like that. And very often insurance companies will approve uh, you know, pre-admission for volume. Um, because of the syndrome. You need to have your cardiac anesthesiologists. Also tell them when you're dividing the adrenal vein, the blood pressure may drop. And it's often taught that you, well, the anesthesiologists gives them a uh, press here, but actually on the in-service exam and on the, uh, on the research I just took, the answer is actually you, you give them um, a bolus of volume of saline or half normal saline. So open techniques are rather infamous. Uh, these were huge lesions. Uh, a right subcostal incision, uh, you know, getting into the, the space behind the liver, um, lifting up uh, the triangular ligaments to free up the liver. This is really dissecting the liver away from the adrenal gland. Um, elevating the patient away from the tumor was classic findings. To get to the right adrenal, you have to mobilize the duodenum immediately uh, to find it. And then, of course, dividing the inferior pedicle. On the, uh, the left side, uh, is, a, is a little more uh, challenging. These are old. These are from the National Library of Medicine. Um, these were uh, 1973, 1975 surgeries. So you can see the patients had to undergo a lot to, uh, to get a one centimeter mass out in, in an MEN2 patient. So we have, to, uh, we have to thank our predecessors, but we also have to thank uh, progress. Most common way, of course, now is, uh, is a laparoscopic, a robotic way. Our, our friend um, uh, Saroosh Bariami down in uh, Alabama just uh, wrote a paper showing that the robotic patients tend to be larger. They tend to have uh, less blood loss than the laparoscopic cases, um, uh, have a similar length of stay, whatever you're comfortable with. You generally can do these cases with only a ligature. Um, this is an interesting approach by Dr. Waltz and Essen. This is a case in which you are approaching the adrenal gland posteriorly with a patient not only prone, but the jackknife position. And you insufflate the retroperitoneum uh, with up to 30 millimeters. Uh, so the patient can really tolerate this. And so everything is flipped over. You can see here that this is an approach uh, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, right uh, adrenal. So you can see here that the, the vena cava is to our, our left. And um, uh, which is, so everything is flipped over. The kidney is down, the adrenal is up. And, uh, and the only two instruments they use besides the camera are the ligature and the, uh, and the elevator. When you're done, you can see the patient in the jackknife position. And this is very important because you need to open up the space. You can see that in this case of single access surgery, you really only have one, uh, one lesion, uh, one incision. So in the last three minutes, we just have a few questions. Um, Conclusions, of course, incidental loans require systemic consideration and workup. Invasive testing is really only done for equivocal cases uh, or cases in which you suspect functionality. Screening is only done for patients with pheochromocytomas and certainly consider pheo even briefly before you undergo any kind of adrenalectomy. 
Not all theochromocytomas have hypertension, and that, that should be considered, especially uh, when you see a lesion that um, enhances on an MRI. Suspect malignancy in any case of an adrenal mass with virilization. Suspect Kahn's tumor if you have lethargy and myalgias. Often patients have been treated for low potassium uh, with uh, KDUR, so you don't see that as much. Um, prepare for an Addisonian crisis. If you're doing a lot of post-partial adrenalectomies, you may not have left a lot of functional adrenal behind. And if you get to the post-op area and you find the patient crashing from shock, hypotension, fever, they may not be bleeding to death. They may actually just be Addisonian and uh, stress dose steroids ought to do it while you're working them up for obviously more surgically important reasons. So here are some in-service questions from our last 90 seconds. What is a clinical feature that may distinguish Kahn syndrome from Theo's? Well, they're both hypertensive. Um, so it's not the degree of hypertension. Um, a lot of people who are older develop cardiomyopathy. Almost all patients with Theo's do have cardiomyopathy. So it's not necessarily a distinguishing, distinguishing factor. Um, myalgias, unilateral disease, very rarely will you have a, a con syndrome on both sides, but it's not unheard of. And uh, mutations in SDH. So clearly, uh, pheochromocytomas, um, you're not going to be doing mutations on SDH. So clinically, I'd say that the most common thing is myalgias. A patient with myalgia um, and an adrenal mass, that's probably a con syndrome, not a pheo. The most common type of adrenal insufficiency, of course, is not from Addison's, Addison's disease, very rare autoimmune diseases, not aging. It's what we do, it's iatrogenic. The most common cause of adrenal insufficiency is cortisol withdrawal from long-standing adrenal treatment. After laparoscopic division of the left adrenal vein, a patient with suspected pheochromocytoma becomes hypotensive. The next best step is to uh, head down, reduce the pneumo, uh, give them sodium nitroprusside, give them a push of a presser. Most people would say this. Most people would say give them catecholamines, um, but in fact, um, you, you give them saline, you give them a bolus of volume. Uh, three months after an adrenalectomy for Kahn syndrome, laboratory values in a now normotensive person who's not on any medications may include which of the following. These drive me crazy. I generally like to guess the answer first and then look at the uh, choices. So, so the possibilities here are two. Uh, one, everything's normal. The patient has a normal potassium and a normal creatinine. But in some cases, you can have an elevated creatinine and you wonder, gee, what did the surgery do? But in fact, this is the unmasking of underlying adrenal, uh, underlying renal insufficiency um, is uh, when you remove the aldo. And importantly, you can't check electrolytes too soon after an adrenalectomy for a con syndrome. If you have a patient that stays in the hospital for you know, three days, five, whatever reason, and you check their, their electrolytes a week later, their potassium may still be low. Uh, it may take some time for the body's store of potassium to equilibrate. So just hang on. Okay, very good. So I wanted to thank, I really have to thank the, uh, the organizers of these, of these talks. This is really a lovely idea, a wonderful idea, and I'm learning a lot from these lectures and uh, will continue to be a big fan 
of the Empire series. So thank thank you for the organizers and Dr. Badalato, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, Dr. Phillips. That was a, a wonderful review of the physiology, the pathophysiology, and the associated you know medical history and history. Um, that ties in with the discovery of these diseases. I'm gonna ask you some questions that were posted associated with your talk as we invite Dr. Whalen to start loading up his slides. Um, the first question is, is there any role for biopsy when you're evaluating um, adrenal masses? It's, it's not uncommon for you to see a patient in the office who's had a biopsy and it's consistent with the FIO. Uh, that is generally frowned upon as the, obviously this can cause uh, a crisis if something goes wrong. The only role for biopsy, of course, would be in those patients who suspect metastatic disease. Um, uh, this might be important for staging, may be important because in some cases in which the only site of disease is an adrenal met, you may be able to validate surgery. But um, we're not routinely uh, doing biopsies uh, for benign disease. Uh, the next question is, um, what are your thoughts on adrenal cortical carcinoma and the approach to surgery? Is open preferred in those situations since there's this theoretical risk of uh, seeding with the laparobotic approach with the pneumoperitoneum? The, these uh, reports of metastatic disease from, um, from pneumoperitoneum are really anecdotal because the tumor is just so rare. But a lot of these tumors are, are really massive. I've only done two of them. They were both greater than 12 centimeters, so they're really not going to be amenable to a laparoscopic technique. Um, they're amenable to a, a maximally invasive technique, and, um, and they're almost always involving surrounding structures. They almost always have to be treated as a, like a sarcoma. Our two patients lost the spleen, the distal tail of the pancreas, and the kidney, and so those are not exactly um, laparoscopic environments. Uh, for other lesions that are five centimeters, eight centimeters, uh, that seem to be amenable to, to um, excision, laparoscopy is certainly appropriate, but then you have to ask yourself, what is the benefit, what is the benefit here? Uh, am I really trying to save the patient a large scar, get it out of the hospital faster? But there doesn't appear to be any obvious reason why a pneumoperitoneum would cause uh, an adrenal cancer to become um, uh, widely metastatic unless you're violating the capsule because of undue surgical tension. 